And a warm welcome to you. Welcome to Thursday's Richie Allen Radio Show, broadcasting live from Salford City. Hope you're well. It's wet here. It's dull. It's not great. It's not great. But anyway, we're together again, you and me. It's the BBG, not the BBC. This is your Richie Allen Show, live from the magnificent city of Salford. It's the Richie Allen Show, broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Yes, indeed, it's all kicking off in Drogheda in the Republic of Ireland. I'll tell you more about that in a minute. I'll be joined this hour by Patrice Johnson from the Irish Freedom Party to discuss this. It's huge, I think, very important issue. Uh, It has been said... It has been said many times that what is happening in Ireland, Ireland is a test ground, a testing ground for agendas that will play out elsewhere around the world. Patrice Johnson to talk to us about Drogheda and a hotel there that has been commissioned or decommissioned as a hotel and has been repurposed for the housing of 500 asylum seekers in Drogheda. So we'll get into that this hour and much more besides this hour as well. By the way, just in case you're wondering... I spoke to a representative of the Irish Freedom Party yesterday. I'm speaking to, I will be speaking to, a representative of the party today. It isn't because I support the party or because I endorse the party. I neither support nor endorse any party. And just in case there are listeners in Ireland who wonder, Richie, why haven't you spoken to somebody from Fine Gael or Fine Gael? as some of their opponents call them, or Fianna Fáil, or Labour, or Sinn Féin, ever since I began presenting this programme, but particularly in recent years, I have always extended an offer to representatives from those parties to come on the programme to discuss, and I've never received a reply. That is the truth. And if somebody from Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael listening and wants to come on to put maybe another side of Ireland's migrant woes, they're welcome to do so. This is an open forum. I like listening to people. So yeah, I reached out to uh, Patrice Johnson. Patrice will be running in Drogheda Rural in forthcoming local elections in Ireland. So she's in Drogheda and will give us our thoughts on that story, which, as I said, is a big story. So much so, I think we should start off with it. We'll talk a little bit about it right now. Yeah, testing ground for an agenda, some say. Um, I've covered it extensively, it is fair to say. Some say you've covered it a bit too much, Richie, but I do think it's an important issue. Otherwise, I wouldn't cover it. Uh, Protests back home against the Irish government's open-door migration policy. Protests outside houses and hotels that have been repurposed to accommodate asylum seekers. Morning Ireland is RTE Radio's flagship programme. It's the... in Ireland, anyway, the longest-running political news programme. Let's hear it today. Let's hear a segment from it. Drogheda's largest hotel is set to house 500 international protection seekers from next month. The D Hotel is in the centre of the town and county councillors there say the announcement came without prior consultation with them and it will have a devastating impact on the town. Labour councillor P.O. Smith joins us on the line now. Good morning, Labour councillor. Um, Give me your reaction to the news, first of all. 
Well, there was a lot of shock and disbelief in the town in regards to the news because uh, it followed closely on the closure of Marks and Spencer's shop in the Lawrence's shopping centre. And uh, people then were fearful of the fact that there was going to be 56% uh, of our tourist accommodation taken out of town in one fell swoop. You hear that? 56% of tourist accommodation in Drogheda taken out by the repurposing of this hotel. It's important to keep this in mind, right? So there's a lot of concern then in regards to what impact that was going to have on the business community and jobs in the area. So, yes, yeah, certainly true to say that people are really concerned about this. And is the biggest concern about the impact on business? Absolutely, yeah. And from my experience, anyway, people are not adverse to uh, international protection agents, uh, applicants coming into the town. It's nice to hear this for a change. This guy's name is P.O. Smith. As you heard, he's a Labour Party councillor in Drogheda. It's nice to hear this. He's saying, well, you know, people are not averse, especially to Drogheda taking in international protection applicants. But my God, like to remove 56% of the tourist accommodation from the town, not too clever, is it? Uh, the reality is that there has been no consultation really with local authority, with the local authority, or local politicians uh, and the local businesses. And it just seems like it's a fait, a fait accompli. A fait accompli, says the Labour councillor. As I said, we will come back to this a little bit later on uh, this hour with Irish Freedom Party candidate Patrice Johnson. It's just insane, isn't it, really? When you think about it, 56%, you know. Take 56% of tourist beds out of the town. I mean, you might as well decommission the town, right? I mean, if you have a business in that town, you're like, what? Anyway, more on it. As I said, anon, let's talk about something else in the meantime. Anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism. There is a McCarthy-esque witch hunt. Again, I mentioned yesterday, if you don't know your history, you lazy Baxter, look it up. Look up Senator McCarthy, the witch hunts, the communist witch hunts of the United States of America. It's a very good film about it called Good Night and Good Luck. You might remember about a famous journalist who stood up to it on his television show, Morrow, of course, Edward P. Morrow, right? Yes, indeed. Have I got? Yeah, of course I've gotten that right. I'm never wrong. I was only ever wrong once in my life. The day I thought I was wrong. I'm never wrong. I'm always wrong. Anyway, we'll talk about McCarthyism for a moment. So this began, I suppose it began in the wake of the Hamas October 7th attack in southern Israel. The British media and the British political class went into overdrive looking for people, political people and people in public life who might be accused of supporting, either supporting Hamas or supporting terrorism. Many of the people they went after, of course, were just criticising the Israeli response in the aftermath of October 7th, in my opinion, anyway. So we've seen the Labour Party having to boot a couple of prospective MPs in recent days, namely Graham Jones, who was going to stand in Hindburn, where he was MP until 2019, but he won't be standing after it after after even it emerged that he referred to fucking Israel at a public meeting and he said British volunteers in the Israel Defence Forces should be locked up when they come home. I don't think there's anything overly controversial. I'm not saying I agree with any of it. It's not for me to tell you what to think and I never will tell you what to think but um, to refer to another country, I mean fucking Egypt, right? I mean fucking Egypt. I mean it's not racism, is it? It's not anti-Semitism, you know. What about fucking Scotland? And their haggis, right? And their women. 
and all the rest of it, right? That, I don't see too much of a problem with that. As for people leaving this country to go and fight for the Israel Defence Forces in Gaza and locking them up, well, that's just that's just bluster, I would say. Although it might not be bluster if the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, makes a determination in the near future is that it is indeed genocide. Well, then some of those British people who went to Israel to fight with the IDF, they might, they might, you know, their bums might squeak a bit, just a little bit, if the ICJ says, you know what, it's genocide all right, but not as we know it. It's genocide. Anyway, so Labour rooting out, and you've got the press in this country. This is why I say McCarthyism. You've got the press, you've got other politicians. They are going through, with fine-tooth combs, the social media posts of anybody in public life to find out if they ever even liked a post, just liked a post, that was critical of Israel. It's mad. Today, it's the turn of the Tories. The Conservative Party has kicked out a mayor, a mayor, after alleged anti-Semitic remarks. Now, not because I'm lazy, only because I haven't had time today. I've been bloody busy preparing this for you. But I haven't been able to determine exactly what this bloke said. Can you help me out here? His name is Atiku... Oh, God, I'm a racist, me. I'm a proper Islamophobe. I can't pronounce this. Atikul Hawk. Atikul Hawk. A-T-I-Q-U-L. Atikul, 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 Atikul Hawk, right? Anyway, Salisbury City Council in Wiltshire. He was their first Muslim mayor. He's gone. He's gone now because apparently he said something anti-Semitic, although I don't know exactly what he said. So they're all over the place today. The Community Security Trust produced a report produced a report. They might as well have pulled it out of their arses. A report that said, since October 7th, there has been 4,000 incidents of anti-Semitism in England and something needs to be done about it. We might talk about this in a moment. I talked about it on the papers, but I won't get into it in any great depth. So they've been saying anti-Semitism is rampant and people use as a cover for their dirty anti-Semitism, they use criticism of Israel as a cover. I mean, this is pure gaslighting now in light of what has gone on in Gaza. But look, just in the interest of balance, and I like a bit of balance on this programme, let us hear from Michael Wegier. Michael is the Chief Executive of the Boards of Deputies of British Jews. Here he is on Talk TV. Anti-Semitism is dangerous. It must be dealt with. That this appalling attack, the worst attack on a single day in the, in the Jewish community, uh, since the Second World War, shocks the British. Yeah, the worst attack since the Second World War in the Jewish community, he says. Now he's referring to Israel. It's a bit cheeky to refer to Israel as the Jewish community because it isn't. It might be the Zionist community, not necessarily the Jewish community. There are Jews living all over the world. Many of them would never live in Israel and would articulate exactly why they would never live in Israel. But we'll let him proceed. British Jewish community to the core, as well as Jewish people and all good people anywhere in the world. And it was compounded in our community by this extraordinary rise in anti-Semitic events that took place. Like Michael, it's the presenter's job here to say, give us an example. Anti-Semitism, or Jew hatred... And he doesn't. ...is a virus, and it mutates to support the need of people mutating virus that um, supports the need of people to do what? Who want to hate Jews. 
So it can come from the far left, it can come from the far right, it can come from extreme Islamism. It's everywhere. It can come from all sorts of places. Usually, as your correspondent in the studio said correctly before, it lies fairly dormant. But something will happen, a trigger will happen, like the appalling Hamas attack on Israel. Hang on a second. So the appalling attack in southern Israel on October 7th, hang on, that triggers anti-Semitism? Can you explain that? Again, the presenter might as well be picking his nose, doesn't doesn't ask it. And all of a sudden, it will come out of its shell, and that's exactly what we're seeing now. No, it isn't, Michael. What we're seeing now is, in the aftermath of October 7th, commentators like myself knew exactly what Israel would do and what Israel has done. And it's the opposition to this, the opposition to that, to the genocide in Gaza. That's what you don't like, really. There was no anti-Semitism on October 7th. Most people were kind of in shock. They were kind of caught cold, as was the IDF, ironically, caught cold. We were like, wow, that's, that's crazy. Nobody supports it. Nobody, nobody likes the murder, the slaughter of anybody, of any citizen in any country in the world. But it was in the aftermath that we saw the protests, the peace marches in London and elsewhere. That's what they don't like, you see. So they make all of these claims about anti-Semitism, but they don't offer any evidence. Just sloganeering. And the British Jewish community, while we are a strong and a proud and a resilient community... Strong, proud and resilient is a sloganeering. I would say we're feeling more threatened than any, any time in decades. More threatened. Now... Let's have a listen to Mike Freer. Mike is a Tory MP, Conservative Party MP, for Golders Green in London. Let's listen to him, again for a bit of balance. Um, it's the most amazing constituency, um, but as you've talked already, the level of tension in the constituency has never been higher. Uh, and these incidents um, are not uh, innocent. It is not legitimate debate to paint free Palestine um, in the middle of a, an area full of kosher shops and at the heart of the British Jewish community. I agree with him, by the way. It is not innocent to drive down Golders Green Road waving Palestinian flags. The flag is not itself illegal, but the actions are designed to intimidate the local community. Yeah, well, Golders Green, of course, a big Jewish population there. If anybody is painting free Palestine outside kosher shops or driving down Main Street waving Palestinian flags, that is provocation. I don't agree with that. The the British Jews, Irish Jews, Ethiopian Jews have got no responsibility um, for what the IDF is doing in Gaza today. And that is wrong. I would agree with him, you see. You might be surprised at me saying that. You shouldn't be surprised at hearing me say that. That is absolutely wrong. The Jews of the UK, most of them oppose it, as we know. And many Jews take to the streets every weekend to join their fellow protesters against it. So I would agree with Mike Freer. Um, but you'll probably find that's probably British Pakistanis, maybe, maybe British Af- Afghans, maybe, maybe British Libyans, maybe, who are and always have been um, ideologically opposed to Israel uh, doing that. And, and, and maybe some of them have had issues with Jews. But anti-Semitism, no. As for the Community Securities Trust, it's very important, I reiterate what I said on the papers. In my opinion, it's a gangster, it's a mafia type organisation. That um, and Jewish people in London particularly are victims of it. It sells. It's a protection racket. It convinces Jewish people that there is an existential threat there, that Jews are in mortal danger all the time, 
and the Community Securities Trust provides security guards and security training for lots of different Jewish buildings and schools. It's hilarious. And it was given charity status in the early 1990s. It's been around since 1984. Again, I've invited the CST on this programme to discuss the need to be putting you know, security guards on Jewish schools and Jewish businesses and why they do it and how they do it. I mean, it's a wonderful racket, that, isn't it? You set yourself up as a charity, you tell Jewish people they're in mortal danger, and then you provide, for a fee, of course, you provide security for them. It's a joke, in my opinion. 16 minutes, it is past the hour. It is Thursday's Richie Allen Show, uh, the 15th of February, 2024. If you'd like to join in with the conversation, you need only send a message to me via the app for the programme. Download the app wherever you get your apps or go to richieallen.co.uk and leave a message via my website where it says comment live. Thank you. Thomas Donow, who asked, he asked me, have I ever considered having Maureen Lipman as a guest? And then he says apologies for the lame joke. There was a time, and it wasn't that long ago, that hardline supporters of Israel were quite happy to speak on programmes with me when I did television in London, when I did programmes like this on evening radio in Spain, and we would have grown-up adult conversations about these issues. As they didn't end up in slanging matches or screaming matches, I was quite happy to talk to hardline Zionists. I spoke for many years to a guy called David Rubin, who was as hardline as it gets. David Rubin left New York, took his family, and went to live in the West Bank, as far as I know. Uh, you couldn't get any more hardline than this guy. You know, and he would come on and he would he would defend, as far as he saw it, Israel's right to do whatever Israel did. And I would take him apart or try to. And that's how it was. But no, they won't. They will not come on. You invite somebody who purports to be Jewish and who is a strong supporter of Israel to come and speak on programs like this. Most of the time they say no. And then they say, oh, because I don't talk to bigots. But of course, we did have we did have a, an Israeli journalist who came on the program. Um, just before Christmas. And we had a very interesting and grown-up exchange, didn't we? gentleman called Ben, as far as I remember. And um, I was set up by Stuart Waiton, uh, the great academic uh, who's, who's based in, in Dundee at Aberte University. So, so, so there is the odd exception, but most of the time they don't want to talk. They would rather throw names and throw accusations, but not actually speak about it. Now, it's easy to say... Well, the reason they do this is because they know they don't have a leg to stand on. Maybe that's true, maybe it isn't. Maybe they genuinely believe that programmes like this are anti-Semitic, even though obviously programmes like this are not anti-Semitic at all or anything like it. Tim says, Richie, Russia has no arms left. No arms. It's a joke. Its navy is decimated. Its troops are fleeing the battlefield in droves while Ukraine stomps onwards to a glorious victory. Yet, according to the same media shields, Putin is the new Hitler. Well, that's right, Tim. Uh, the media wants to have its cake and eat it. On the one hand, it wants to tell you that Putin uh, is a shambles. The army is failing him drastically, running out of money and weapons. On the other hand, they want to tell you that if he has his way, you know, he'll romp around, he'll, 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 he'll do what Hitler failed to do in the 1940s. That's a very good point. Ardell says, Richie, it's pathetic. I've just read an article in The Independent where they have removed the firing scene from The Apprentice as the individual has been accused of anti-Semitism. I've invited that individual on this programme. 
In fact, I, in fact, I reached out to him today. I'll tell you his name. He won't come on either. I guarantee you he won't come on. His name is Dr. Asif Munaf. And I've uh, reached out to him on Twitter. He's seen my message, but he's ignoring it. Um, kicked out of The Apprentice, accused of anti-Semitism. I've invited him on to talk about it. Wait and see. I might be wrong. He might come on. Let's talk about something else. Let's leave anti-Semitism alone. But again, I've got to say this, and I'm not stirring shit here. I mean this. The Community Security Trust, please share this with them. It is a protection racket. It's straight out of the late 19th, early 20th century Sicilian emigrants, uh, sorry, Sicilian migrants who went to New York and out of that came the, the, the mafia who ran protection rackets, who went into stores and businesses in New York City and said, you need to pay us to protect you because if you don't, something really bad might happen to your business. And that is exactly what the Community Security Trust does. I dare them. I dare them to put up a representative to come on this programme. It's a joke. And I'm amazed that Jewish people, sensible Jewish people, would fall for such crap in London, you know, and would, would donate to this group massive amounts of money so that they can send a security guard around to watch their business. It's a joke. So it is. There is no anti-Semitism in this UK. Not Look, you'll find, wherever you go, you'll find a bigot here and there, a genuine one. But they are few and far between. And this is one I've ringed out. I know this. I've ringed it out, this one. It's an old chestnut with me. I don't see it. I speak to Jewish people. I speak to Muslims. I speak to British Pakistanis who I know well. Well, lads, nah. There's no real Islamophobia. We don't we don't see any of that shit, Richie. And I, I speak to Jewish people, friends of mine. Do you have to put up with any shite, really? Even since um, the incursion in Gaza, the genocide? Nah, not, not really, Richie. And some of these Jewish people will wear the kippah. They get nothing, anyway. Let's talk about this. I'm running out of time already. Sadiq Khan is winding people up. There's no doubt about this. Sadiq Khan, like him or, or dislike him, and I obviously wouldn't be any fan of his or any politician uh, in this country for that matter, any elected official anywhere. I have no time for any of them. I say, but I think Khan's doing a wonderful job at winding people up, at enraging people. Listen to Kamali Melbourne on Sky News this afternoon. Now parts of the London train network are getting a revamp. Lines on the London Overground will be renamed with new colours to... Uh, enable passengers to navigate the system more easily. There was no need for any of this. I lived in London. I know the overground and the tubes. There was no need to rename any lines on the overground because people are too stupid to follow the maps. There was no need for it, but Sadiq Khan thought otherwise. The services on the six routes are going to be known as the Liberty Line, the Lioness, the Mildmay, the Suffragette. The Lioness. Suffragette. The Suffragette Line. The Weaver and the Windrush. The Windrush Line, lovely. And I'm very pleased to say we can speak now to the Mayor of London, City Khan, all about this. Uh, Mayor Khan, thank you very much for taking the time to speak. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. £6.3 million it's uh, said to have cost to do million. this. Explain why spending millions on new names and new colours for the lines is a good use of public money during the cost of living crisis. Good question. Why do we need the Lioness line? Why do we need that? Why do we need the Suffragette line? Sadiq? Well, the money for rebranding these uh, six lines is within the TfL budget already uh, set aside. We speak to customers every day who find it a nightmare getting across these 113 stations across these six separate lines, because they're all called London Overground, 
all have the orange uh, uh, colour. And you'll recognise from this great city of ours, we've got 12 tube line stations with distinct names, distinct colours. We've got the Elizabeth line. But these six particular uh, lines are quite confusing. How do you get from Liverpool Street to White Hart Lane? How do you get from Croydon to Enfield? It's the same colour line, 113 stations, and it's a night... The same way we always did, Sadiq. We just looked at the maps or we asked somebody in a booth. You know, that's how we did it. Simple as that. The maps are pretty straightforward, even for an idiot like me. And I'm pretty useless now when it comes to following instructions, particularly written instructions. I'm not very good. That is what we did. I negotiated and navigated the overground system in London. Didn't need to do this. Nightmare. So what we've done is uh, we've engaged with customers, uh, yeah. with local communities, with industry experts, with historians, and announced, announced today uh, six brilliant uh, new names for these six distinct lines. It'll make it much easier uh, for commuters to get across our great city. Brilliant new names. Brilliant new names. And? So it's been a, a long process. We've been engaging with uh, customers, communities, uh, people across uh, our city. We've announced the six uh, uh, names uh, today. Not everyone's going to be happy, but we think we've managed to please most people, which is really important. Yeah, most <laughs> Sorry, sorry about that. Um, sorry, I don't know what happened there. Um, yeah, so we, 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 we've made most people happy. So that's how it's going to be in the future. It's humiliation. They're humiliating people. I said this years ago, I got a few giggles. Um, fast, food, fast food restaurants used to do this to humiliate people. They'd give ridiculous titles to some of the food items on the menu. Like you'd have to go up and ask for a filet o fish, which, which is just ridiculous. It's a fish sandwich. Filly o fish and all this, all this crap, right? So now, now they're going to have people saying, well, look, what you do is you, you take the suffragette line, right? And you take it down there to, 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 you see that station there on that street there. Then you get off and you jump on the Windrush. <laughs> you jump on the Windrush. <laughs> oh, Jesus. But it, do you know what? It serves its purpose because I think it's designed to make people crazy and angry and to distract them from the things that are a bit more important. But then I could be wrong. And as you well know, I'm often wrong. Sadiq Khan, the Mayor of London. Each line will have its own colour and its own name. Every now and then a radio presenter gets his or her arse handed to him or her. And it's lovely. You know, we've talked a lot about the media in, in history. We've talked a lot about the changes to the media on this programme, particularly the broadcast media. I've bored you to death. I've, I've even felt it in, in, in the force. I felt it. I've had Obi-Wan Kenobi tell me, Richie, there's a great snoozing in the force. You're talking about this again, Richie. There's a great snoozing. Obi-Wan Kenobi, you see. But it's very important. I, I wrote articles about this. I, I spoke about it. The transition from journalism to commentary, where presenters, like presenters I produced of yesteryear, we're, we're not there to give you an opinion. We're not there to change your mind about something or to programme your mind about something. They were there to link news items together and to interview the central characters in the news stories. And those presenters had to be completely neutral and had to ask tough, challenging questions. That is all they did. And many presenters did it very, very well. This changed, of course. That has gone now. And now your radio programmes, first of all, they've all been centralised nationally. So where you had a mid-morning presenter on your local radio station, which used to be owned by a local businessman or woman, that's all gone now. Particularly in the UK, the mid-morning talk shows now are national. And there's only about three or four of them, right? 
And the presenters are commentators. They are there to give you a point of view, aggressively sometimes and loudly. And this is not good, but people are waking up to it. And I never thought they would wake up to it. Uh, Sheila Fogarty presents the afternoon radio show for LBC, which stands for Leading Britain's Conversation. Yeah. And a listener phoned in and he'd had, a, he'd had enough of presenters ramming their opinions down his throat. And it was a joy to behold. The other thing, which is controversial as well, Sheila, you included, I want less of your opinion on things. Fantastic. And more opinion of other people that phone in. Wonderful. Because you particularly put your opinion firmly in, in the frame each time and over-talk other people. And I don't think that's good enough for a radio presenter to actually put their opinion always first. Fantastic. Well, I'll bear your criticisms in, in mind, Jonathan. And You I, should see the video. She has a face like a bulldog chewing a wasp. I will, to a degree reject some of them if you don't mind but anyway i will certainly bear them in mind because you're doing it now you keep saying it's my program you wouldn't have a program if people didn't listen i love this guy (laughs) you need to remember that i keep saying it's my program you do you say it probably a dozen times each program it's my program i'll do what i want and other presenters do the same thing are you mistaken? All radio stations. Are you mistaking me with some really unpleasant woman? No, he's got you nailed, love. Uh, I didn't say that. No, I'm I saying it because she that. sounds awful. Word. She is awful. I'm awful. just saying you're very opinionated. That's okay, and I don't isn't think it? people want to listen to your opinion. They want to listen to other people's opinion. It's great when Middle England stands up and says, I've had enough of this shit. Who, who are actually creating your programme? I've got to go now. I haven't really got time to speak to you anymore. I've just educated you on how to do a radio programme. Okay. <laughs> or how not to, as, you, as in your case. OK. Goodbye. Wonderful. <laughs> That's how it's done. Yeah, Middle England, Little England, Middle England. They're waking up, dearest listener. They're waking up to the bullshit. They've had enough of it, so they have... I've had enough of it. Maybe you've had enough of me, maybe. That's fair enough, too. It's uh, half past the hour now. My name is Richie Allen. This is your Richie Allen show. It's your programme, not mine. Lest you become all Norman on me and ring up and tell me I'm shite. We're off to draw the next. Can't wait. Back in three and one half minutes' time. Yeah, 27 and one half minutes to the top of the hour. John Farnham. Yes, 1980s, and you're the voice. Now, as I mentioned at the very top of the programme, there a uh, big situation developing in Drogheda. Don't have me tell you where Drogheda is. Look it up. It's near Dublin. Look it up. Google Maps, Google Earth, whatever you want to do. Look, it's important, this. Um, there are those who believe this is a testing ground, what's happening in Ireland, for an agenda that's going to be rolled out everywhere. And it's very serious for the people involved and for people in these villages and towns where these things happen. So the D Hotel in Drogheda has been repurposed to, um, to, to house 500 asylum seekers, meaning that would take 56% of tourist beds out of the town of Drogheda, which I don't care where you are on the issue of asylum seekers or migration. That is patently insane. And if you had a business in Drogheda, well, you certainly have something to say about it. I want to welcome to the programme. She um, is representing the Irish Freedom Party. In fact, she will be standing in Drogheda Rural in the forthcoming local elections in Ireland. Let's say hello to Patricia. Uh, excuse me, to Patrice Johnson. Hello, Patrice. Hello, 
Richie. Thank you for having me on. It's nice to have you on. It's nice to meet you. It's turning into a, an Irish show this of late. I'm here in Salford with lots of Irish guests, which which um, which I love. It's nice to have you on. So this is um this has been brewing for a few days. It's kicked off big time. As far as you understand now, I mean, I did hear Labour councillors speaking to RTE. Is, is it a is it a definite decision? Is it a final decision? Will the hotel be used to house five hundred asylum seekers, or is there any chance, because of all of the attention it's getting, that they might put a pause on it and maybe think again? What What's the latest, Patrice? From what I've been reading, the same as yourself. Contracts have been signed and from the 5th of March, it's a two-year contract and 500 is moving in. I think it's a done and dusted deal at this stage. So at the moment, it's done and dusted. And what would it mean? I mean, um, uh, P.O. Smith, the, the Labour councillor speaking to RTE, he said it would take 56% of tourist capacity out of Drogheda. What, Patrice, would that mean? Yeah. What would that mean for Drogheda? Well, he was also saying that is a 12 million loss in revenue. There's 70 jobs in the hotel. They're all going to be lost. And this day before, we heard Marks and Spencers is pulling out of the town as well, with the result of another 56 jobs going. And they draw it, it thrives off tourism. So there's going to be a lot of cafes, there's going to be a lot of small shops that'll end up closing. So it would be economically devastating for the town then, wouldn't it? And I and I read about Marks and Spencers, Patrice. Apparently, this is a lot of this is down to lockdowns, isn't it? So Marks and Spencers, like a lot of stores, obviously had a difficult time when lockdown was imposed. A lot of people were buying things online and shopping online, and this is this is affected. You said fifty six jobs will go there. You said or have gone. Yeah, they'll be going now. That shop's closing now, March the eighth. They're pulling completely out of the town. And then the jobs in the hotel, and then you've got fifty six percent capacity. Then tourism capacity gone out. I want. I mean, you you're obviously on the campaign trail. Then Patrice, what 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 sort of reaction are you getting from local people, whatever their politics might be, whoever they might support? What are they saying about the hotel? Because the hotel is not just bringing in tourists. I'm guessing the hotel is important for people in in Drogheda to use for parties, for weddings, for celebrations, for meetings and what have you. So what are the locals saying about this? Well, apparently now the PR team for the hotel have come out and said functions will still go ahead and the bar and the restaurant end will stay open. That'll be a separate entity. It's only the beds that's going to be used for the IPAS applicants. Yeah, but, presumably, but I can't see that happening. People will just boycott it. Yeah, and presumably they're not going to c- confine the applicants to their rooms. They're going to have to eat. They're going to have to have recreation uh, time. Does the hotel have recreation facilities, Patrice? No, it doesn't. It, I don't think it even has it. There's no gym and there's no swimming pool in it. So they'll be out of the rooms and going all around the town. Yeah, uh, yeah, fair enough. It, it it has bars and it has function rooms, and they're saying right, we'll. Yeah. So what about people? Look, look, you're getting used to it, of course. Obviously, you're you're you've got a presence online, so people will say Ireland has a responsibility, like every other country, when people are fleeing persecution or when they're when they're fleeing wars. We've all got to do our bit, Patrice. When 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 this is said to you, what's your response to that? 
We do have our bit to do, but at the same time, when we have over 13,000 homeless in this country, we should be looking after them first. We can't continue to accept thousands into the country when our own is in ruin. Like, like nobody has, it's, everyone is struggling. Even with the rental accommodation, there's no homes. So we can't keep going. Everyone is getting angry and fed up that no matter who walks into this country, they're getting bed and board straight away and our own is left in the streets. And tell me about the, the 500 asylum a- applicants. It, as far as I understand, it is 500 men. Is that right? Well, that's what I believe too. But the PR team today came out and said that it's women and children and families. But at the same time, directly across from the D Hotel, there's another building being done. And we're hearing the exact same thing for that one, that it's women and children and families only. But yet when you look all around the country, they're hearing the exact same words, but it's busloads of men coming in. And like there's currently 878 IPAS applicants living in tents outside the IPAS centre in Dublin. Is All it, them need a home. It's more than 800 now, is it? I saw photographs of what, what some people are calling tent city there. It is incredible. So you said across the road from the D Hotel in Drogheda, they're repurposing another building, are they? And is that a commercial building or is it another small hotel? It's an old commercial building that's been renovated. Isn't this amazing? There's quite a few in Drada, quite a few buildings. And you look at Marks and Spencer's now. And again, this is just pure theory. I don't want to be accused of making stuff up because I'm not. But with the economy the way it is and with retail struggling as it is, again, largely because they were forced to close their doors for so long uh, during the, the COVID thing, the COVID scam, as I would call it, but that's just my opinion. They'll probably find it difficult to hire or to rent the empty Marks and Spencer's building to to another retail business, or they might find it difficult. Who's to say they won't recommission uh, the M&S building for, for asylum seekers, uh, Patrice? What do you reckon? You see, that is in a shopping centre. Oh, it's inside a shopping centre, is it? Ah, right, right. So it's not on a high street on its own. It's inside It's inside a shopping centre. And people, I mean, yeah. I, I'm, I'm obviously here in Salford, so I'm not home. But I get the impression, and it's only really from social media and from reading the Irish newspapers, but I get the impression there's a lot of tension. Do you feel that? I mean, for me, I, I, my, my concern would be that it will turn Irish person against Irish person because it's such a contentious issue. Is there any, do, do you feel that? Is it palpable, the tension around immigration in, in Ireland at the moment? Well, to be honest, in the space of a year, I can see a drastic change in people's perspectives with it. Like I only joined IFP a year ago. And even in the last six months, we're getting out and canvassing and leafleting in streets. More and more people are actually coming and talking to you. And they're fed up. And like it could be... Someone that would never say anything in their life about anything. And they're even coming up and they're saying, no, like this is getting a bit much. Like they're all hearing the stories. They're all seeing videos of what is going on up and down the country. And they're concerned. And so was- if more people come out and express their concerns, I think then all these ones that will come out and say, everybody's welcome, everybody's welcome, their numbers are dras- drop even more. You think when people start to feel the pinch in their own pockets, it's going to take 
it might take that for more people to come out. And I, I, I didn't speak to you beforehand, so I, I know very little about you. So is this your first kind of foray into politics then? It is, yeah. And it was never something I dreamed of. I can I can hear the smile in your voice. Yeah, I'm smiling myself because um, so, so that that's a bit of a leap, that Patrice, isn't it? I mean, you must have felt pretty strongly about it at the time to decide, you know what, I'm going to join a party and I'm going to stand for election. So you must have felt proper strongly about it. Well, the fact I have young kids. If I don't fight for their future, who will? That's my attitude with it. Resources are um, are stretched so thin, again, largely because of the calamitous COVID policies. And you've got youngsters. Are they very young, they are? Well, it's a mix from 20 down to three. Right. And you're thinking... So it's the, the younger ones more that I'd be more concerned about and what is down the line for them. Like, even down to the fact I have a 16-year-old, she won't be allowed to walk down to town on her own now. And you mentioned, and I understand this, right? Look, normally I push back a little bit because, you know, I think <coughs> there's a little bit of sensational coverage in the conservative media. I'm not knocking anybody. I, you know, this is a free speech forum here. But not, not every young man coming into the country, wherever he's coming from, is going to be, you know, a danger to women. But 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 at the same time, I don't have young children and young daughters. So maybe it's easy for me to say... I understand. And I also understand why people are saying, well, we don't know very much about the backgrounds of these men. And some of them, or a lot of them, are tearing up their documentation when they arrive or before they arrive. So it's very difficult then to to, to know very much about them. So I do know that. And of course, Patrice, we've had a couple of very high profile murders and attacks, haven't we, in, in the last couple of years back home? Well, says look at the Ashling Murphy murder. And that is down to EU open borders. She'd still be alive today if the borders were controlled properly and if proper checks were done on people. Then you have the two men in Sligo. They'd still be here today as well if proper checks were done. And yet the government says we do proper checks. The government says... It's they don't. Good, well, you know, they say it's a conspiracy theory. They say we're not stupid. We do. We, you know, they, they say they check with Interpol and they check with other organisations in Europe to try and find out as much as they can about these people. That's what they say. I'm not saying they're telling the truth, Patrice, but that's what they would come back with. Oh, yeah, that's what they'll say. But at the same time, they don't have checks into the countries where they originated from. They can't get them. So we don't know, like, these people tearing up their passports. They could be wanted killers. They could be wanted rapists. They could be paedophiles walking in. And there's no way we'd ever find out because they can't check them properly. At the same time, we've heard stories of people burning their fingerprints. So when they're scanned, they won't come up on the EU system. When you think about it, taking young men in large numbers from parts of the world which are very culturally different to Ireland and bringing them in and dropping them in a repurposed hotel where they don't know anybody, they don't speak the language necessarily, um, there's con- suspicion, obviously, in the local community. And by the way, I totally understand it. Look, my, my angle on this is when you are effectively destroying public services, which the successive Irish governments have done for years, and making it very difficult for people to survive in their own communities, and then you dump into those communities um, 
men, women, children from other parts of the world, you make it even more difficult for people in terms of schools, education, medicine, um, doctor, access. I totally get all of this, Patrice. For me, it's an insane policy. It's insane. But you feel, do you, before we move on, you feel not only in Drogheda, but there is a kind of a, a groundswell of movement against this and that Irish people are slowly but surely kind of standing up and they're saying we've had enough. Yeah. More and more are coming out. More and more are speaking up. And that's what we need. More people need to stand up against the government policies. You've taken because a bit of... I can't yeah. even, you can't even get a doctor's appointment. And if you go to... Like the one we're putting these into Drada, the one hospital is constantly full. You go to casualty and you could be sitting up there for about two days before you've been seen sometimes. It's that overrun. Schools have them waiting lists and I have been talking to Tusla within the schools and I was told that any of the non-national children that come into the school, they're prioritised over Irish children for school places. Is, is That's it, how bad it's going. And how frustrating is it for you, right? Um, I don't know you from Adam or Eve, right? But you sound like a nice person to me and your your argument is logical, right? So how frustrating, how scary is it? And actually, how embarrassing is it? Maybe it isn't. Maybe you're not embarrassed. But when you raise an issue like this, you get piled on by, not just by idiots on Twitter, but you've got the broadcast media in our country, your country, you're there, I'm here, you know, referring to you as basically like some sort of disgusting racist. How do you cope with that? It's only names. Names don't hurt. And they've no other argument other than name calling. Yeah. If it's racist to love your country, then so be it. If it's far right to stand up against the government policies, then so be it. But there's no point in sitting at home twiddling your thumbs and expecting, oh, this will get better. The only way it's going to get better is if we make the changes ourselves. I think the names lose their impact anyway, Patrice, over a period of time. They become boring. And even, even people in the community who might not initially agree with you they'll eventually just get tired of hearing it, you know. And the more you demonise somebody, the more you castigate them and call them names, the more interested people become, funnily enough. You'll probably experience this yourself in the coming years. You, you, you'll find people become a bit more interested. Well, why is the media going after this person and this party or or this group? I'm, I'm curious. There must be something, you know, there must be something interesting going on there. So you'll find a bit of that too. So, so share with our listeners here in the UK won't know, when... And I want to ask you about the referendums briefly as well. When will um, when are the local elections taking place in Ireland? I think it's the same day as the Europeans, the seventh of June. Seventh of June. So you're campaigning hard. You're out there knocking on doors. Oh, I'm out every weekend. It's the only way to do it. Because you're working during the week, so you're out at weekends knocking on doors. And well, listen, let me ask you this then, because I had a colleague of yours on the program last night, Mandy Gall. Tell us the referendums then on March 8th, two referendums to change the constitution, change the wording of the constitution, remove woman and uh, change the wording around, you, you know, what constitutes a family. I don't need to ask you, I guess you're urging a strong no, no vote, yeah? Yep, definitely. Simple as. Durable relationship is just ridiculous term. And it leaves it wide open for abuse with family reunification. 
To me, it's an it's a referendum based on immigration. The only ones that's going to benefit on this is Mohammed and Ahmed when they put in their claims to bring their four wives and their families over. Yeah, and it can open the doors even for them claiming the children is theirs when they're not for child trafficking. Now, not every Muslim has four wives now. In fact, no Muslims I know have four wives. But look, I hear you. I hear your point. Um, Irish Freedom Party uh, candidate, you've been listening to uh, Patrice Johnson. Patrice, thanks for coming on today. I appreciate it. I wish you well. We'll keep an eye on what's happening in Drogheda and maybe we'll speak again on it. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Nice to speak to you. Bye for now. Patrice Johnson from Ireland's, uh, from the Irish Freedom Party on Thursday's Richie Allen Show. The time now is coming up for nine minutes to the top of the hour. Yeah. Um, comments. Yes, I'll get to them in a moment. Lots of comments. In fact, I'll get to them now. Kay reckons in the news a couple of days ago, rules are being relaxed for foreigners wanting to join the British Army. How long before the young fighting age asylum seekers join the army and are then armed? Now, hang on a second. Hang on a second. This is an area I know nothing about. Nothing. It must be admitted by me. I know nought about it. I would have guessed, if you'd asked me before the programme, Richie, what do you think the barriers to entry are to the British military? I wouldn't have, no I wouldn't have known the answer, but I would have guessed that a young man or woman, able-bodied, no matter where they were based in the world, if they wanted to volunteer for British Army training, that they could do so. Now, I know you're going to shout at me and call me naive, but that is what I thought. Genuinely, I thought, I mean, the, the French Foreign Legion, I know that's a completely different thing. But I thought, yeah, if you, you know, if you committed a couple of years, you know, you'll, you'll probably start educating me now about the Gurkhas and all of that, but I don't know. But that's interesting. They're changing the rules on foreigners wanting to join the British Army. I'd have thought that if you were 16, 17, and you were a European citizen and able-bodied, fit enough to pass basic training, they might have had you. But again, I'm, I'm obviously wrong on this because I'm, I'm wrong on so much. The time is, uh, I'm not going to keep telling you the time, it's, it's, it's a radio... It's a radio habit. More music when I come back. More comments on Thursday's Richie Allen Show then. In the afternoon. Well, it's the early evening here. And it's taking that little bit longer for the daylight to disappear, which is lovely. Yeah, music from players. That's Baby Come Back on the Richie Allen Show. Love that. Love a bit of 70s me. A lot of comment came in on Sadiq Khan's changing the overground lines, names to suffragette and all of that old nonsense. Needless to say, the abuse, the abuse is coming thick and fast. Lewis reckons hundreds of mainly black young men have been murdered in London in the last five years. It hasn't been given the same coverage as people shouting from the river to the sea, says Lewis. Lewis, I don't know about this. I don't know about that. I monitor the media pretty much every day and there is a lot of coverage. Well, well, I should say, there's a lot of talk about stabbings. A lot of talk. I mean, a day doesn't go by, first of all, 
without a stabbing occurring somewhere in the UK. But the broadcast media in particular is pretty much all over it. And zombie knives and stuff like that. So so I don't know, buddy. Maybe you're right. Maybe you are. Maybe I'm wrong. But I do hear quite a bit of it. Uh, hi to Cliff Moore. Hi, Cliff. Who visited his mum in London today, the east of London, and has been walking on Leighton Marshes. Uh, Cliff reckons they are chemtrailing the skies big time today. It's like a bit of a soup, the sky. I do believe that more and more people know something is wrong there. And he was listening with interest to my conversation with Alana Freeland yesterday. Thank you, mate. Uh, hi to Les, who says, Richie, Sadiq Khan, the idiot, he boasted he'd get West Ham to pay more rent for the London Stadium. West Ham showed him the contract, which was binding, and off he went, having done nothing at all, says Les. You'd have to... It's a strange one, Sadiq Khan, because if you didn't know any better... You'd imagine he's one of, if not the most unpopular mayors in recent times, in recent memory. Yet the guy is probably going to win the next mayoral election in London and probably by a significant margin. I I hate to be the bearer of bad tidings for my London listeners. However, if I'm wrong, I'm not going to say something stupid now because you'll hold me to it. But we'll, we'll have a celebration. We'll play a certain song if I'm wrong. Not that it matters. You know, the idea that it matters who the mayor of London is, it doesn't really. The agenda is going to proceed, regardless of who the mayor is. Khan just happens to be detestable. And for people who are listening to this programme for the first time, or who found it recently, there's no xenophobia here. I couldn't give a damn about Khan's ethnicity. He's just an odious little pipsqueak of a man. You know, he reminds me very much of Jimmy Cranky, Nicola Sturgeon in, in Scotland, in terms of they take great delight in telling people they're going to fuck up their lives, don't they? There's a glee. There's a little twinkle in their eyes as they're telling you, by the way, I'm going to make your life even more difficult. A little bit of a glint there. And Kadan, 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 who the hell is Kadan? Uh, Sadiq Khan, for me, particularly horrible. I detest him. But then I detested his predecessors, so it makes no difference. Any politician you ever did like, Richie? As a younger man, you know, I was pretty taken with lefty politicians being a trade unionist so yeah there were people I would have believed back in the day but then I learned I grew up I wised up but maybe I didn't maybe I was wrong G-Man says Richie I saw an old video while waiting for today's programme to begin of Jordan Maxwell's final lecture I'd seen it before but I watch it anyway now it really hit home we're witnessing a global communist takeover right before our eyes, says G-Man. It's interesting you use the term global communist takeover, G-Man. I'm going to be a bit curmudgeonly now and I'm spoiling for a fight. I'm not really spoiling for a fight. But, uh, listen, you use whatever terminology you choose, by all means. But um, I, I don't necessarily think it's helpful. We talk about communism. It's not, it's not really communism. It's not democratic socialism. It isn't socialism. I use fascism, and I'm probably wrong. I don't think we've coined the phrase that aptly covers exactly what it is they want to to create. It's the world they want to create, because what they want us to where where they want us to end up. I don't think you could describe it as communism, because I remember as a young lad hearing about the evils of communism, 
you know, by people who didn't understand communism. Now, before you get your knickers in a twist, and I don't mean G-Man, I mean you too, do not get your knickers in a twist. Um, I'm not extolling the virtues of communism. Of course not. Of course not, right? Not at all, not a chance. But um, people who would speak to me about communism, they didn't understand it. Like, they, they would talk about, um, they, would, they would tell stories about one car, one car between everybody in a village and you had to take turns in the car and all of this sort of stuff. They would tell all of these stories about communism and um, they misrepresented communism. Again, I'm not saying I, I supported it. Listen, what they want to do, I don't think we've coined an appropriate phrase to describe it. We use terms like technocracy, technocratic, dystopian, dystopic. We, we use terms like transhumanist society. Because I think ultimately, can we, in the half an hour we have left, and it's only a half an hour today, I've been working very hard. I'm still battling with an old illness that I can't shake, and it's heavily impacting on my voice. I'm going to stay with you for a half an hour, at least, at least. It was a strange day today. I had a couple of people pull out on me late on and left me a bit, um, left me a bit light in the second hour, but that's fine. I don't mind. I, I like chatting with you in any case. But um, funnily enough, you'll you never believe who's gotten back to me via message. Dr. Asif Munaf has returned my message and has followed me on Twitter. Uh, this is the guy kicked out of The Apprentice, uh, Alan Sugar's uh, thing. And he's told me that he is airing his, his... He's going to tell his own story on TikTok later. And then, if I like, he'll speak to me after that. Maybe tomorrow in a pre-record, maybe next week. So fair play to the lad. He got back to me. I didn't think he would, but he got back to me, Dr. Asif Munaf, who is a medical doctor and was due to take part in The Apprentice. Or maybe did take part in The Apprentice with Alan Sugar. And then they dropped the episode he was due to appear in because he was accused of anti-Semitism. I've invited him on. He said he will come on now. So it's there. He said, yeah, I'll come on. So there you go. You see, you think you know everything and I don't think I know everything. But um, we'll see. There's still time for him to pull out. We'll see. And not come on. So yeah, where was I? Talking through my backside again. So if you think of where they want to take it, I want you to help me out here. To imagine. Conan O'Brien used to do a fantastic in the year 3000, I think it was. In the year 3000. But we don't have to go as far in front of where we are now. We don't have to leap so many years ahead. 3,000 is what? If it's 2024 now, the year 3,000 is 976 years away, right? Yeah, that's right. So forget about 3,000. Let's look 40... Let's look 46 years ahead to the year 2070. What do you think it'll look like? What will the day-to-day life of John Q. Smith or Josephine Q. Smith, what will it look like? Help me out here. Send me a message via the website richieallen.co.uk or, or talk to me via the app. What will the day look like? They want us basically confined to our homes. I think this is obvious, right? Don't think we can dispute it. They want us confined to our homes with everything we need deliverable. Either physically deliverable or printed via a 3D printing machine, or deliverable through the internet, through smart technology, smart devices. They want our homes to become smart homes. They also want us to live in much smaller homes. 
than we do now. Well, we've talked about this quite a bit too. There's those of us that think we're lucky enough to own our own homes. Um, I think they're going to try to decommission those homes. Christ, I sound like a fear-mongering truther, and I'm not. But they're openly talking about it. You know, if you cannot, if you cannot bring your home up to an environmental standard, right, a, a energy efficiency standard, they're saying you won't be able to sell it. We will embargo your home. Again, if you don't believe me, look it up. I'm not going to give you the exact newspaper articles. Get off your backside, do your own research, right? So that's what they're going to do. So increasingly, we'll be living in smaller human settlement zones, in smaller apartments, which will be smart buildings. Everything will be within an arm's... So, so they talk 15-minute cities. I think in 40, 60 years' time, it won't even be 15-minute cities. It'll be five-minute zones where everything you need will be available to you. Not quite everything, but everything that they think you need will be available to you. I think that's where it's going. And I don't think you can describe that as communism. Not having a go at G-Man now, who makes some interesting points on the on the chat. That's some sort of... We've seen science fiction films, some, I can't name them, where they portray these types of environments where you're pretty much confined, but you've got entertainment on tap. You've got virtual reality. And God knows. I mean, do you remember some years ago, Gene Hackman and Will Smith were in a film called Enemy of the State, and Will Smith was amazed when some contractor for the National Security Agency laughed out loud when Will Smith said, man, some of this technology you've given us for the movie, it's just blown my mind. I never thought we were so far advanced. This is true, by the way. And the NSA contractor said to Will Smith, give over, you dipstick. Do you think we'd give you the things we are operating and using today? And it was a revelation for Will Smith. He said, man, this is old technology, old. So we think virtual reality... We think, we think meta, the metaverse, Mark Zuckerberg, which seems to be stalling and it seems to not be taking off. And we think about the virtual reality and we think, ah, in the future, we'll all be living inside virtual reality. Well, what if that isn't true and that we cannot even imagine at this moment in time the types of technology they will have and that they will be able to use to lock us into some other digital paradigm or reality. So we think, put the headset on, right? Look around, it looks like you're in a different room. This is mind-blowing stuff. Imagine if the virtual reality headsets were, as the NSA guy said to Will Smith, well, that's just yesterday's news, pal. So imagine it's going to be something completely different. You know, where it's not wearables, it's not implantables. Well, maybe it is implantables, maybe the Neuralink chip maybe but you don't necessarily need to wear gloves you don't necessarily need to put a suit on you to experience it imagine holographically they will be able to change your environment for you imagine that imagine in the near future they can change your immediate environment holographically and they can put you anywhere they want to put you or anywhere they sell you they sell you on it where do you want to be today well, I'd love to be, do you know where I'd love to be today? I'd love to be sitting on the bridge overlooking Sydney Opera House having a picnic. 
we can do it just like that. They sell all this stuff in the name of, you know, we need to stay, we need to stand still, we need to stay, we need to remain where we are, we need to occupy ever decreasing spaces. Imagine that. We need you to occupy ever decreasing spaces and have less and less physical interactions with your fellow human beings. But but by having less interactions, it helps our carbon capture technologies and it reduces your carbon footprint. We'll give it all to you. We'll put it in your living room. We'll transport you. It might even feel like teleportation, which is a great science fiction invention, teleportation. The idea you can walk through a door in Salford and immediately emerge on the other side of a door in Peking, immediately teleportation. Well, we'll do teleportation. We will holographically change your world around you. Imagine they could do that. Imagine if people went, you know what? I've had enough of your tyrannical bullshit. I can't take any more. It's like the, the, the Matrix. When they ask Neo, do you, do you, would you prefer now you swallowed the other pill? Do you want to go back to the dream world? And one of his colleagues in the Matrix gets so fed up of the real world because they've made it so miserable that he says, yeah, put me back in. Just give me, make me famous or give me a big job, give me some money or whatever. Imagine they said to you in 40 years time, we can do that for you. We can give you a life, an existence. A holographic one. But every fibre of your being will feel it's real. Just sign on the dotted line and you never leave your apartment. I wonder. So excellent uh, comment by G-Man where they want to take us. But I don't think it's, I don't think, I don't think communism covers it, in my opinion. I don't think you could, I don't think a word exists in the English dictionary to describe where they want to take us. Total separation physically from your fellow human beings. Um, pets, pets, out the, forget about pets. There won't be any pets if they have their way. Again, as much as it might sound like fear-mongering, it isn't. It's what I believe is coming down uh, the train track at us. But I, I don't believe I'll be alive to witness when it peaks, I don't think I'll be here. I'll be 50 next birthday. If I see 75, that'll be a good innings for a guy like me. I think, yeah, all right. So 25 years from now, 2049, no. Maybe I won't be at the worst of it, but we'll see. You're sending me your comments. Let's read them. Mr. Ben could do that, says Dean. Thank you, Dean. Alan Watt and Cutting Through the Matrix is perksy. People should pay attention. Davy says, Richie, only this morning on BBC Radio Ulster, breakfast, a head case came on promoting the 15-minute cities, saying everything will be in walking distance. Um, says Davy, if the sheep do not wake up when hearing this, I give up, he says. David says, the term fascism does fit the bill. Uh, the merging of corporate power and the state. The faux-democratic EU fits this bill already. World governance and total corporate power. United Nations, World Economic Forum, styly uh, to some, says David. Uh, hi to James, who says, Richie, you are assuming they are going to get away with it. I hope not, says James, although at nearly 70, I won't be here to see it anyway. James, I think it's inevitable. And it isn't because I'm a defeatist person. 
I'm not. I'm also not a pessimistic person. I've got a pretty cheery, a pretty chirpy, cheery outlook on life most of the time, if not all of the time. I just think it's inevitable, man. I really do. It doesn't mean that I don't believe humanity will eventually triumph over it. I happen to think humanity probably will. It's just I believe there is going to be a period of darkness. I really do believe this. And I think it's from within their matrix, kind of like the film, that's where the opposition will maybe come, maybe. When, when, when the children of the future will begin to wonder, how did things used to be? What was life like? Can you imagine what it might feel like to the children of the future if you told them about our childhoods in the 60s, 70s and 80s? So, so that's how I see it. I, I think there is an inevitability about a lot of this at the moment because I don't see any real opposition to it. I don't see any genuine opposition to it. I see people tweeting about it. I see people making videos and putting them on Rumble about it. But that's not fighting it. You know? Theodore says, Richie, I have refused to make a single conclusion whilst those telling me is that my carbon footprint is too large fly in private jets and own multiple mansions themselves. Theodore says, I drive a little mini and I live in a three-bedroom terrace. Yes. I don't drive an SUV either, Theodore. I live in a three-bedroom semi-detached in Salford. It is absolutely rich to be lectured about carbon footprints, you are right, by those who travel in private jets and who own houses in the Hamptons and in Marbella and elsewhere. You are spot on, 100%, no doubt. Simon says, that's the plan from their own mouths. He says, we are humped if nothing changes. Hi to James Brophy. Hello, James. He says, a Blade Runner society, Richie. That is what is happening. The window cleaner says, Richie, Sadiq Khan will win again. Same way he always does. Fraudulent postal voting. Landlords voting in 10 different names from multiple addresses. Restaurant owners telling the staff to vote for him or find another job. Now, come on, window cleaner. Do you have any evidence to support any of that? That there was any vote rigging in London? I haven't seen any. I'm not saying, you know, I'm not trying to, 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 to shout you down or to dismiss you. I just haven't seen any at all. Um, Julie's been on to say, hello, Julie, autocratic capitalism. If you told the line, then you can get on in life, says Julie. Hi to Sam Carno who lives 25 miles south of London, the suburbs for those in the city. We have had wonderful black families move near us via the council's construction projects over the last few years, last 10 years. It took a few years, but once the young lads realised everything had improved in their lives, it changed and it has been great, adding this demographic to an already multicultural population already. We all just get along and the food options are amazing, says Sam. Sam, you should come on and talk to me about this. You should come on and talk to me about this. This is very interesting. Sam lives in South London, 25 miles from the city. Black families moved into the area because of council-sponsored construction projects. This happened over a decade, says Sam. Took a while but once the young lads realised their lives had improved, they were in a better place, 
It changed their outlook on life. And it has been great, says Sam, um, adding to an already multicultural population. That's really interesting, Sam. And I'd like to hear more about that, to be honest, if you want to get in touch with me. Chris reckons, I think it's more likely to be a slum and bleak, like that described in Orwell's The Road to Wigan Pier. Maybe, Chris. Hi to Stuart Atkinson, who says, Isn't it strange, Richie, that motor insurance has nearly doubled for lots of people for no apparent reason? I've had that myself, Stuart. My car insurance, it's up every January. And um, mine increased slightly. Well, it, it increased by more than slightly. I think by £150, I think. Not monthly, but, but the, the annual uh, premium. And I have a flawless driving record for years. Yeah, it has done. Anyway, home insurance is going up too for no apparent reason. But with 100 excess debts, life insurance can still be achieved without a medical and the prices are the same. Are motor and home insurance subsidising life insurance? Asks Stuart. That's an excellent point and comment. That's really good, that. I'd have to look into the life insurance premiums remaining static or remaining the same. But if you're right, it is indeed very interesting. Because with 100,000 excess debts, you'd imagine the life insurance policy providers would be having kittens, wouldn't you? And they would be rushing to increase their premium uh, prices, their policy prices. Very good, uh, Stuart. Well done. Jack of all trades says, Richie, they do not want what is unfolding. Whatever that does, maybe transpire as a result of their hand being forced. These people would rather stay anonymous, he says. Thank you. Billy says, Richie, we are, we are already living in a virtual reality simulation. And it is a computer simulation, as they have found computer code in the fundamental mathematics of equations of atoms. Yes, they have. Something I discussed on this programme years ago with a NASA scientist called Rich Terrell. Yes, they have. That's a very good point. The best, the best guess now, at the moment, about our reality, is that it is a simulation already. I agree. And it's what I would, I would put my money on. This is a simulation. I would put my money on it. Doesn't mean I'm right, but that's where I would go. Tim says, believe it or not, my grandson's new Oculus 2 virtual reality headset can indeed put him in any location in the world, leaving him free to explore in a virtual world from his own front room. He is 12, says Tim. His grandson has an Oculus virtual reality helmet and it transports him anywhere in the world, leaving him free to explore. I put on a pair of goggles years ago. It, it came with a Samsung phone. And I discussed it on the Richie Allen Show at the time. I did it for research. I really did do it for research. Because I was talking quite a lot about virtual reality. And even the very basic set, going back about eight years ago, it was still very, very good. When I say good, realistic. I was able to put a pair of goggles on me, which wrapped around to the completely covering my eyes, basically. And I was able to find myself standing in a clearing, looking at various dinosaurs surrounding me, a brontosaurus, a triceratops. And I remember saying to uh, the Mrs. Horrendor, saying, this is unbelievable, this. Now, this was years ago. So I can only imagine the quality of the virtual reality headsets now. But I think in the future they won't need a headset. 
they, they'll be able to holographically change. And, and maybe they'll be able to build homes. That's what I was trying to get at, but I, I lost my train of thought. They will be able to build homes with that technology in the walls of the house, whereby your entire surroundings can be changed holographically, you see, without the need for you to put a suit on you or wear a helmet. And I reckon that's already something that's probably already designed, I guess. Um, Ray's in Edinburgh. Hi, Ray. If the jab does its job, then the population will be much lower. Society will be split like the film Demolition Man, he says. Hi to John Fahey. Hi, John. Too many possible futures to choose from. Silent Green, 1984, Brave New World, Logan's Run, The Matrix and loads more. I reckon the first stage will be CBDC, Central Bank uh, Digital Currencies, and the end of the free society we've lived in so far, he says. Lot of comment on this. Thank you very much. Gail asks, Richie, do you think the millionaires or the people with lots of money who are not part of the cabal will let them get away with it, asks Gail. I don't know, Gail, is the short answer to to that question. I do not know. You mean people with money who've done very well for themselves but are not connected in any way to the agendas, will they fight it? I don't know. They might do. It's a good question. Some of those people with money, um, they had their say during the COVID scam, didn't they? And then they were accused of being shills and and they were they were they were, they were attacked online. And people said they didn't believe them. People said they were controlled opposition and all of that. So I don't know. Uh, KJ says, Richie, all of us are living through the transition of the new normal. It is an incremental process which will be fifty percent completed by the middle of the next decade and will accelerate thereafter. That's from KJ. Uh, the time is now twenty three minutes past the hour of five o'clock. Thursday's Richie Allen show. Very interesting stuff, this. Very interesting. Let me read some more comments. The website, richieallen.co.uk. Comment live. It is me, Richie Allen, with you. Quick plug for the Papers podcast, which is available to download Monday to Friday around about 7am, that is UK time. Not a live radio show, merely a podcast. Wayne says, the modern definition of fascism covers the very things we've seen these last years. But whatever one calls what is enfolding, it is ultimately total control and enslavement of the masses under the jackboot and iron fist of the very few. No doubt. Brian reckons the opposition to totalitarianism is already here, Richie. When there's this negative power, there is positive. This is all an experience. We are souls travelling. He says, I hope he's right, but I don't see it but I hope he's right. Um, I see a lot of Twitter talk and social media talk and a lot of navel-gazing, but I don't see a lot of op- opposition. No, I've got, to, I've got to, hang on, I've got to be fair here. I've got to be fair. The opposition to ULEZ in London, the vandalism, I shouldn't say vandalism, covering the cameras, disabling the cameras, I'm not endorsing any of this stuff, but that is non-violent civil disobedience and that certainly is opposition. So I should say that, and I should be absolutely clear about it. You know, a lot of people didn't take the, the, the jabs. That's opposition. 
a lot of people ignored social distancing and a lot of people ignored the lockdowns. That is opposition. And maybe, over time, the numbers of people refusing to do what they're told will increase and that, of course, will be a fantastic thing. There's, there's no doubt about that. Because ultimately, when, when it all boils down to it, my opinion is, and it, it, it hasn't changed, is that large-scale, non-violent, civil disobedience, for me, my opinion only, is the only way out of it. That's how I see it. And it's how I've seen it for years. When, when, when enough people say, and this has to happen locally, you know, in towns and villages, when enough people say, no, that enough now. I'm done. Enough people. Not complying anymore with your council taxes and your, your, your income taxes. I'm not going along with it. That's how we stop it in the end, I believe. Will that happen in time? I'm not so sure. Like I said, I have a feeling and I'm not, you know, I'm no researcher. I'm, I'm, I'm a journalist who likes to hear people talk about these issues. But I do have a little bit of an insight into it because I've been listening to it for years. I think we're heading for a dark period of time. How long? I have no idea. I have no idea. I hope it's not a very long time at all. But I have this feeling that from within this prison, in decades to come, that is where the opposition to it will emerge. But again, I'm, I'm happy to report a lot of people completely disagree with me and say, no, no, Richie, the opposition is here already. Rob says, Richie, we've just moved to be near the country and a bit more off-grid. We struggled with home insurance as we are near the coast and they have decided we are in a flood risk area, even though it has never flooded in 50 years. I can't help think it has something to do with the climate scam. I bet Billy Gates has no problem insuring his seaside properties, says Rob. Again, excellent comment, Rob. And it's something we have discussed on this programme many times, the decommissioning of coastal towns and coastal areas uh, because of Agenda 2030 and because of uh, the Great Reset. Listen, that's it for me for today. Thanks for listening this week. Thank you uh, to Patrice Johnson earlier on. I'm back on air with you on Sunday morning with Sunday Morning Melodies. Uh, before that, if you want, you can catch me on the Papers podcast tomorrow. Uh, it'll be online sometime around 7am, as I've already said. From me, the BBG, thanks for listening this week. Thanks for all your support. Until next time, it's um, Sloan Thomas. Bye now.